just based on your class and like your level and you know your equipment and maybe your materia and whatnot and i'm obviously going to cut all of this part out because yeah. everybody else is going to be completely lost. <laughs> They're going to be like, what but, the hell is going on over here? <laughs> Please stop talking about a video game we don't know anything about. Hi, everyone. I'm Jolie Hales. And I'm Ernest DeLeon. And welcome to the Big Compute Podcast. We celebrate innovation in a world of virtually unlimited compute, and we do it one important story at a time. We talk about the stories behind scientists and engineers who are embracing the power of high-performance computing to better the lives of all of us. From the products we use every day to the technology of tomorrow, computational engineering plays a direct role in making it all happen, whether people know it or not. Ernest, so I know you're a gamer. Yep. And I am curious, have you ever played a video game or maybe something like Second Life where you tried to create a digital version of yourself? Or are you the kind of person who like doesn't want your video game digital personas to look anything like your real life persona? So I'm kind of in the middle on that one. Um oh. in a game, what matters to me most is that their hair is like my hair. <laughs> Okay, cool. And that's because I have long hair. I, you know, it's usually in a ponytail. So I like to have my characters have long hair. And then aside from that, whatever, it doesn't matter. What about you? Okay, that makes sense. Maybe this makes me egotistical, but I'm the kind of person who typically tries to model all of my video game characters after myself as much as possible. I don't know. I guess it's kind of fun to see myself in these like fantastical worlds, you know? I think that's the case for most people who go into these kind of second life or other ones like it. It's kind of like a second reality to them. They live a different life, but they want to be the same person in that other life. As an example of this, so as you know, because we've talked about this before, I've been a big fan of the Final Fantasy video game series since I was a kid. And I know you have too. Yep. And I've beat just about all of them except for Final Fantasy XIV. An adventurer arrives in Eorzea, one whose tale is yet unwritten. But for those who don't know what Final Fantasy XIV is, it's an MMO which stands for Massively Multiplayer Online Game, or in other words, people all over the world log in and they play with each other using custom-created characters. And while there are storylines within the game, the game itself really never ends. They're always releasing new content and missions to accomplish. Uh, another MMO people might be familiar with is World of Warcraft. Oh my god, he just ran in. And because these MMOs never really end, they have a reputation for being an epic time suck. And don't I know it. So you mentioned Final Fantasy fourteen. I have never played it, but I came from Final Fantasy eleven. <gasps> And really? that was another MMO. And yeah. that one I played for about a decade. And when you talk about time suck, Whoa. there's a lot of time. And that's one of the reasons why I won't play 14 now. Yes. I just don't have the time. Right. Exactly. And that's why I delayed it for so long. But then I was talking to my brother what? and my brother-in-law. Uh, Spencer, you need to get in the crystal like 
a sack. And my husband. Yeah, I'll just take care of the crystals dropping. And we're one big nerdy family. And we all decided we're going to give it a shot together as like a way for us to hang out together, even though we live in different states, once the toddler is in bed for the night. <laughs> right? So that's how I justified it. I get it. Oh, no, we're not. We're we're not. We're I shouldn't shopping. be in there. Oh, I shouldn't oh, have gone in the wow. middle. The bed in the middle of the wrong one. And when I built my custom character, instead of picking like one of the cat people or the Vieras, which are these bunny rabbit people or like a tiger or a dwarf or something, I chose a human character and tried to make her look as similar to me as possible, like in the jawline, the eye size, hair. And of course, she's a kick butt ninja with glowing pink daggers. So, you know. A direct copy of my real life persona. Oh, of course, of course. And I sort of did that. When I started Final Fantasy XI, I didn't know what to pick. So I started off with a human. It was kind of boring. And then I got an elf. That was boring. And that's when I finally <laughs> settled on the Taru Taru, <laughs> which is the the little tiny ones that are yeah. major magic casters. And from then on, I just played as that. But I made sure that they had long hair. Yeah, of course. And a ponytail, I assume. And a ponytail. That's right. Okay. Well, you're going to have to send me a, a picture <laughs> of your character because that just sounds super adorable. We'll post it on the uh, episode notes, our digital personas. Because that was a lie. <laughs> He's raising someone Wait, He's a summoner. He's a summoner. Oh! He can raise us too. He's raising I me now. So in playing Final Fantasy fourteen, I've got to say it's already pretty impressive how realistic video games are starting to get with custom character creation. And Final Fantasy XIV is kind of older graphics, but even still, it's getting to the point where I already consider my Final Fantasy XIV character kind of my digital doppelganger, right? Or you might even say my digital twin. I knew you were going to do that. I knew it. <laughs> I got to I gotta get into the subject somehow. It's interesting, right? <laughs> Before I even read the next line of the script, I was like, oh, I know where this is going. I know where this is going. Oh, now am I that obvious? <laughs> But it got me thinking, what if someday there was a real digital twin of me, not one that just looked like me, but a digital model that had all the historical and real-time data of my physicality and circumstances uploaded into it for each organ, each bone, maybe even my brain activity. I mean, it's kind of freaky to think about because a detailed digital representation of myself like that could potentially predict my future and come with its own ethical dilemmas. But just thinking about the beneficial side of things, like if I broke a bone, I would have a personal digital model that could determine what the best treatment would be for my specific bone instead of some one size fits all treatment. Or if I caught a virus, this digital twin could predict which doses of which medicines would be best to treat my particular case in my particular body. I mean, heck, maybe it would even be able to customize a vaccine just for me so I wouldn't even be susceptible to that particular virus in the first place. I mean, theoretically, it could even be able to predict when I would likely develop maybe a certain cancer or medical condition, not only making it possible to begin customized treatments early, but potentially even knowing how to prevent the cancer or illness from developing in the first place. 
I mean, this is all very utopian and not really reality at this point, but we're talking about the potential for incredibly personalized medicine here, which is a bit beyond my Final Fantasy XIV character, I guess. Maybe not. So while technology may not have evolved to the point of mainstream personalized medicine, parts of this idea are actually already in practice, and not just in healthcare and life sciences, but in aerospace, energy and utilities, manufacturing, automotive, building design, and many other industries. We may not be to the point where people have complete digital twin counterparts, but many products and systems used today do. And that's what got me interested in talking to this person. I'm the director of the Odin Institute for Computational Engineering and Sciences at the University of Texas at Austin. Meet Dr. Karen Wilcox, who is also a professor of aerospace engineering and engineering mechanics at UT Austin and an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. Basically, I'm an aerospace engineer, although I work at the interfaces of aerospace engineering, applied mathematics and computing. And uh, really, my research group works on computational methods that enable design and decision making for next generation engineering systems, mostly in aerospace applications, but uh, we dabble in many different applications. And if you look up her resume online, you can see how accomplished she really is because she'll never be the first one to tell you. And as you may have guessed by her awesome accent, Karen was born and raised in New Zealand, and her story is kind of cool. She was the daughter of an air conditioning fitter and a secretary, neither of whom finished high school. And then Karen went on to become the first person in her entire extended family to go to college. And she's obviously brilliant. And the first time, in fact, that she left New Zealand was to start grad school at MIT. So I imagine that was a little bit of a transition. She's also a mom of two young kids and an avid trail runner. So, you know. She has a lot of free time, I'm sure. Of course. They're at a good age where they can bike just about at the speed that I can run on the trails. Karen is what I would call an expert in digital twins. In fact, when we were talking about the possibility of having her on the podcast, she used a hypothetical example to introduce me to the whole digital twin concept. And I want to paint the same picture for you here. So, Ernest, are you ready to lace up your running shoes? If I owned a pair. (laughs) Joke's on you. (laughs) running shoes no i don't run it i think i told you this before i'm not running anywhere (laughs) that you know they always talk about humans having fight or flight responses mine is only fight there is no fight i'm not running if someone tries to attack me it's going to be a fight that's all there is to it if it's a lion well i guess it's over because i i can't outrun that we can outrun a lion anyway well that's true but but the point is i'm not going to run away it's just that's just how it is (laughs) i'm too slow so fair enough so you'll really have to use your imagination for this one yeah Okay, so imagine you're running out on a favorite remote trail. It's a crisp, partly cloudy morning, perfect for getting out there to collect your thoughts and exercise. You run over a hill and through some trees and can see the city landscape disappear in the distance. Total freedom. Just then, your foot hits a divot in the trail, your ankle twists, and you hit the ground. After the dust settles around you and you realize what has happened, You look yourself over. There are a few scratches on your arms, probably a bruise forming on your knee, but at least you didn't fall into a cactus or a nest of rattlesnakes or something. You definitely don't want to fall anywhere near a rattlesnake. That would definitely change the story. (coughs) So then you notice a throbbing pain in your leg. So slowly, 
You pull yourself up on your good leg and you carefully place the hurt foot on the ground. With every bit of caution you can muster, you gradually put weight on that foot to assess what to do next. Think about this specific moment. Your next actions will depend completely on your assessment. If your leg feels fine, you'll probably get back to your run, trying to be maybe a bit more cautious this time. If your leg is in a decent amount of pain, you might bag the run for the day, turn around, and hobble back home. And if your leg is in really bad shape, maybe you can't put weight on it at all, you might have to do that thing you never wanted to do and call a rescue team. It's this assessment process I want you to really consider right now. When you're putting weight on your injured leg, you're collecting information about how it actually feels in that moment, and then using that information to make a real-time assessment of just how bad the injury is. An x-ray later will show you what the damage is, but for now, you just need to know what you're capable of doing in that injured state. Can you run? Can you walk? How far could you go? How much more damage could you cause from moving? The information about the current state of your leg is feeding into your brain and updating the estimate of your current capabilities, helping you make a decision about what you do next. Now, imagine if we could equip an engineered system with that kind of self-awareness, one that can reference these data and use them to calculate the state of your current condition, as well as predict what will or should happen next. That's the idea behind a... Digital twin. You guessed it! How did you know, Ernest? I read the script. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, a digital twin. Or as Dr. Karen Wilcox explained. It's really a computational model. It's a virtual model, or maybe it's a set of coupled models that mimics a particular physical system and in particular mimics the properties and the behavior of that particular system. The ever-reliable Wikipedia defines a digital twin as a virtual representation that serves as the real-time digital counterpart of a physical object or process. I love that I'm quoting Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. It's always the best. (laughs) So if everybody thinks of your favorite system, for me, it would be an aircraft, but, you know, it could be a spacecraft, a car, a bridge, a building, whatever it is that uh, you, you get excited thinking about. And then think of a digital model of that system. So now not a generic digital model, but a digital model that is tied to that one particular aircraft or that one particular bridge. So this isn't just hey, this is a digital model representing a certain type of car, but this is a digital model that's representing this exact car that's sitting in this exact garage owned by this exact person at this moment. Right. And Karen says that that personalization is one of the key differences between a true digital twin and any other computational model utilized by scientists and engineers. One application that's of interest to me is thinking about package delivery drones. And so imagine that every package delivery drone in the future, in the coming decade, maybe we're going to see thousands and thousands of package delivery drones in our urban areas. So imagine each package delivery drone has its own digital twin. And what that means is that the digital twin has to reflect the ways in which each drone differs from other drones. So manufactured on different days, flown by different package delivery companies, serviced and maintained in different ways, and and so on. Another key difference that sets digital twins apart from other computational models is the fact that digital twins are not static. Or in other words, 
you don't just create the computational model and then consider it done. You keep feeding data into it. Rather, it's going to be living. So it's really going to follow the physical twin through its life. And so you immediately start to see that this digital twin is not just about computational modeling, but also is going to require a close integration with data. And uh, there's going to need to be this sort of back and forth between the models and the data so that we can update the digital twin as, for example, our delivery drone gets older and older and older and degrades and eventually gets to the end of its life. Yeah. So this actually kind of reminds me, although it is a little bit different, but sort of along these lines is if you look at any Star Trek, the ship often has what we would consider a digital twin of itself in the computer system. So it always knows the status of the weapon systems or the shielding, or if a certain portion of the hull is about to buckle under weight, it's because it's got real-time data feeding into that digital version, and it's constantly calculating what could happen as a result of whatever's happening to it, and it notifies the people on the bridge what decision to make next on what to do to stop it. I need to watch more Star Trek in order to understand these references from you. That's a good example. Real life digital twin on board the actual device it's twinning. That would suck if it suddenly said that it was going to explode in like 10 minutes. It does do that. That happens (laughs) in several episodes and they have to either abandon ship or figure out a way to solve the problem. You could imagine that if you were an operator and you have a fleet of thousands of drones you have these digital twins of each one and you've been tracking, you know, what everybody's been doing. And so, you yeah. know, you know, d- digital twin number seven is your your star. I guess it's a little bit like runners, Jolie. Yeah. Uh, digital <laughs> digital twin number seven is your star. That's the one that you give, you know, your high value package or your really tough delivery option. Whereas number 32 is a bit like me yesterday where I'm feeling a bit tired and maybe not not quite <laughs> capable of it. So it really becomes a platform for data-driven decision-making that really reflects the changing health of a complex system, or in this case, a complex fleet of systems. So the term digital twin is actually relatively new, even said to be a few years newer than the iPhone, actually. It's generally accepted that the term came from NASA in 2010, but the concept of a digital twin existed long before that. Like the Star Trek episodes, Ernest, weren't those made before... 2010? Oh, yes. I mean, the ones where I'm, you know, where they had the, what we would consider the modern LCAR system was Next Generation, which was, I think, the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Those are the ones I saw, like the William Shatner ones. No, William Shatner's the original series. That's the 60s. Oh, that's the series that I watched with my dad. (laughs) And there's some amazing special effects in that. Oh, (laughs) man. Yeah, the special effects (laughs) for that era are great. Have you seen the one where he, like, attacks the dragon monster and it's this horrible fight? It's, like, one of the worst. I think it's labeled the worst fight on the internet. (laughs) Yeah. It was the 60s, right? So they didn't have... Oh, it's so good, though. They didn't have, you know, all the modern special effects stuff, especially if you go back and look at, like, the first, I'm going to say, three or so episodes of Next Generation. It's cringeworthy. Like, the act- <laughs> I mean, it was a new show. So it's your favorite. It- Being a guy who, a connoisseur of Lava Lantula and Velocipaster, this is right down your alley. Oh, I, I loved it. I loved it. And like I said, <laughs> it, it was a brand new series. This was like the first couple of episodes. This group of people had never worked together. So they're like trying to figure it out. And then it's fun to watch those first couple of episodes and see how awkward the entire <laughs> <laughs> production was. <laughs> 
you sort of look back over the history of engineering, I think you could point to many things that you might call a digital twin. For instance? Back in the Apollo program, when NASA were launching Apollo craft into space, they would have simulators on the ground, so digital simulators on the ground in Houston. And of course, we're all familiar with the Apollo 13 crisis, thanks to the movie. Mm -hmm. And this is a great example of where the idea of a digital twin became just so powerful. Uh, Houston, we have a problem. We got a wicked shimmy up here. Houston, we are venting something out into space. It's definitely a gas of some sort. We never lost an American in space. We're sure as hell not going to lose one on my watch. Odyssey, do you read me? How long does it take to power up the limb? Three hours by the checklist. We don't have that much time. I, I, I remember seeing this movie now. Wait, you don't remember the movie very well? No, I, I remember seeing it, but I watched it one time and then never watched it again. Oh, so, I thought you would have seen this one a number of times and like have it memorized. No, but it the just one, seems like your kind of movie. Well, aside from the cringeworthy movies. Right. But the one I did love was the um, I can't remember the name of the movie, but it's the one where the asteroid's about to hit Earth. No, like Armageddon. There you go. Armageddon. Oh, that movie's yes. terrible. I know, but I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Because, again, you know, I'm not a filmmaker. I'm not watching these things like to see if this thing should earn some kind of an award. Clearly. (laughs) I'm there to be entertained. And they flew in and drilled into this thing and blew it up. That's all I wanted. Like. (laughs) But what do you remember about Apollo 13? Just it's to this day, the things that interest me most when there's either a launch or, uh, for instance, we recently landed another rover on Mars. Right. Yeah. Is to watch inside of mission control and look for that moment where whatever it is they're trying to do happens and the entire room just explodes there yes, are people that crying is so awesome. there's food flying places you know it's <laughs> it's out of control that's what i remember most is those type of scenes and, and apollo 13 obviously had one like that hello houston this is odyssey it's good to see you again There are various scenes in movies where they get it right. This one from Mission Control was one of them. Yeah, it really was. And that particular moment stands out to me as well in this movie. I actually really enjoy this movie. In fact, I want to go back and watch it again. But there's this really interesting blog that has to do with Apollo 13. And it's written by Stephen Ferguson for Siemens. And Siemens, full disclosure, is a Big Compute 20 sponsor. I'll link to this blog in the episode notes. And this particular blog talks about how NASA basically used the digital twin concept to save the astronauts on Apollo 13. 13, we've got one more item for you when you get a chance. We'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tanks. In addition, uh, I have a shaft and trunnion okay. for a look at the Comet Bennett if you need it. Okay. Stand by. This is Houston. Say again, please. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, Houston, we've had a problem. We've had a main B bus undervolt. Roger, main B undervolt. Okay, stand by, 13. We're looking at it. The flight of the Apollo 13 to the moon is in serious jeopardy this morning and is not going to make a moon landing. 
when suddenly that explosion took place and the electrical power went out and all bets were off for a moon landing. Uh, since then, uh, Houston and the manned, uh, the spacecraft itself has gotten squared away, fired off the descent propulsion system engine of the lunar module and uh, is now on a trajectory that will take it around the moon, headed back toward Earth for a landing here on Friday, uh, probably. But that uh, will be a first, of course, in space, and this is indeed the gravest emergency probably yet in the American space program. From supersonic jets to personalized medicine, industry leaders are turning to Rescale to power science and engineering breakthroughs. Rescale is a full-stack automation solution for hybrid cloud that helps IT and HPC leaders deliver intelligent computing as a service and enables the enterprise transformation to digital R&D. As a proud sponsor of the Big Compute podcast, Rescale would especially like to say thank you to all the scientists and engineers out there who are working to make a difference for all of us. Rescale, intelligent computing for digital R&D. Learn more at rescale.com slash bcpodcast. For everything from accelerating office productivity apps to fast-tracking world-changing scientific research, Azure High-Performance Computing featuring AMD EPIC processors provides powerful, cost-effective solutions to solve some of the world's most complex problems. But don't just take our word for it. Jellyfish gained a 70% boost over on-premises capacity and the ability to hire the best talent anywhere in the world. Want to know more about how Jellyfish is taking advantage of the cloud to up its hiring game and burst to the cloud? Go to aka.ms slash hpc slash jellyfish to read more. Totally not important, but interesting that the quote is actually Houston, we've had a problem, not Houston, we have a problem. It's all it's all a matter of perspective, right? It's kind of like if someone has an accident in their pants, <laughs> they've had a problem. But but <laughs> de- but depending on where example is that? Uh, 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 but depending on where they are physically, they could have a problem. <laughs> so it could be either or both. Houston, we have a problem. So as our listeners probably know, Apollo 13 was a NASA mission intended for the moon in the year 1970, but then it suddenly had to about face into this rescue mission when some routine stir of the oxygen tank basically ignited damaged wire insulation, and then it caused this explosion that started ventilating their oxygen supply into space. From the moment the oxygen tanks exploded, Mission Control worked around the clock to keep the three astronauts alive while simultaneously trying to figure out how they'd even be able to bring them 200,000 miles back to Earth safely, if it was even possible. To figure all of this out, Mission Control turned to their system of high-fidelity simulators to help them troubleshoot and find creative ways to conserve oxygen and power for a craft that was quite literally out of this world. Yeah. you called in your backup beacons now, see if we can get some more brain power in this We thing. got one here. Roger. Long before the Apollo 13 spacecraft even launched, 
both astronauts and mission controllers had been preparing for the mission by using 15 physical simulators for thousands of hours to anticipate all different kinds of potential scenarios in space, including instances where equipment might fail or something could go awry. Now, a simulator in itself isn't really a digital twin, obviously, but what makes the NASA simulators different with Apollo 13 is the way that NASA was able to reconfigure the simulations as they collected information from the astronauts in space. Leave two and three as is. In the Siemens article I was talking about, Stephen Ferguson makes the case that because mission controllers were able to rapidly adapt and modify simulations to match conditions on the spacecraft, they were using a kind of first digital twin. NASA were now able to take the data from the real spacecraft, which was crippled and stranded in space, take the data, feed it into the simulator on the ground, now dynamically update that simulator so it's reflecting the changed conditions on board the physical spacecraft, and then use that simulator to run the simulations, to run the what-ifs and investigate the different scenarios and then ultimately inform the decisions that brought the astronauts back safely. Yeah, and that makes a huge difference because access to real-time data and as much of it as you can possibly have mm-hmm. is the only way that you can make the best decision. Absolutely. And for example, one particular problem with Apollo 13 that needed to be solved was how to maneuver the spacecraft and manually align it for three separate engine burns without throwing it off its trajectory toward the Earth, all while the guidance computer was powered down to save the little energy that they even had. So suddenly these processes had to be done manually with equipment down. So Mission Control sent teams to practice these maneuvers on the simulators, modifying the circumstances as they collected data from the astronauts and then relaying instructions back to the astronauts on the spacecraft. And that was just one of the many challenges of Apollo 13 that was solved this way. Yeah, I could imagine in like a previous mission where they didn't have this type of technology, they probably wouldn't have made it back to Earth. Exactly. And it was such a new concept in so many ways. And after sleepless nights and working around the clock, you can imagine how those at Mission Control were feeling when these three astronauts actually successfully splashed into the ocean alive. There they are. There they are. They've made it. All three shoots out. Listen to the crowd on the boat. It was really the one time frame on our life when we really felt that that we were put here for a purpose in life and that uh, we had fulfilled part of that purpose. Uh, I personally cried during that period of time, as I think did uh, many members of the operations team. And it was really joy and relief. And finally going through this period of uh, extremely high anxiety, it was... uh, time that I don't think any one of us will ever forget. That was how flight director Gene Krantz described that moment. He's the guy played by Ed Harris in the movie, by the way. That's right. We never lost an American in space. We're sure as hell not going to lose one on my watch. Technology has obviously come a long way since 1970. And while digital twins as we know them today are relatively new, we are seeing more and more of them used in engineering for structural health monitoring but we still have a long way to go to unlock some of their real world-changing potential. We need models that let us predict the future so we can play those what-if simulations. We need methods for integrating data with models and dynamically updating our models 
Um, we need a whole lot of computing power and computing infrastructure to make that happen. And those are all the pieces. Those are all the things that I work on to make this possible. And for that kind of stuff, we need a whole lot of high performance computing. Yep. No matter how many incredible advances there are in, in computing power, engineering and science is always going to ask for more. <laughs> as fast as the computing power increases, the complexity of the problems we want to solve and our ability to wait for those solutions compresses. So we're always going to need computing power. And by the way, not just you know massive high-performance computing on the ground, but also thinking about real-time and in-situ computing. And as this technology is more and more utilized, I imagine that the demand for high-performance computing, especially cloud HPC, will go up dramatically. I mean, what blows my mind is the potential in so many diverse situations when it comes to digital twins. That's right. And it seems like we do a pretty good job of increasing our need for more high-performance computing power as we're creating more power itself. So we're, we got a pretty good balance going there. I think it's fair to say that while there's some really compelling examples out there and we're starting to see value, digital twins are still very much in their early days. So we're really starting to see sort of some of those initial seeds of what's possible with today's technology and, and what value it brings. We're seeing digital twins in civil engineering, architecture, and urban infrastructure. So that would be things like digital twins of building to help with, for example, energy efficient management of buildings or predictive maintenance for urban infrastructure. So, you know, bridges, roads, everything that keeps our cities running and makes them effective. We and my group are collaborating with a small company, Accelos, who are doing just incredible things with digital twins for wind turbine farms and also for hugely complex offshore platforms that are used in oil and gas. And of course, shipping drones could take advantage of digital twins if they become the norm for companies like Amazon, which I think would be crazy cool to look outside my window and see some drone dropping off a package and then flying away. I don't know. That's totally the future for me. It'd be cool to see it one time, but you know how big Amazon is. You know how much they sell. Yeah, you know I mean? I this thing would be like a constant swarm of bees that, that's all, so all around, all around they, you all the time. <laughs> they'd have to find a way to make these drones silent or else it would be kind of a disaster in areas where there's a lot of people living there. Yeah, I like the idea. I think it's cool. I'd rather just have the truck and the guy come around. <laughs> <laughs> or at the very least, like the truck just be self-driving and then a little robot gets out of the back okay. and drops your package at your doorstep and then gets back in the back. I could be down for that. There's a lot of interest in thinking about what role autonomous cargo aircraft could play in that global supply chain. And of course, a lot of people will vision the, the drone flying to your doorstep, but that's not all of the supply chain. The autonomous vehicles could play a role in many different aspects. So if that is going to be a reality, again, we're thinking about a future with many more autonomous vehicles, particularly being in urban areas, there's no way there's going to be human operators monitoring all those vehicles and mm -hmm. looking to see what battery charge or what structural health they have on any given day or what happens if they, you know, clip a building or clip a tree or get hit by a bird or I have visions of my son in a slingshot standing on a corner <laughs> trying to shoot down a drone. Right. All of this monitoring is going to need to be automated. And again, this is a fantastic application for digital twins. So I think digital twins are going to be a key enabler for, in this case, safe, reliable and efficient autonomy. Yeah, she brings up a good point, right? So there's no way to monitor a fleet of any kind of substantial size 
with a human being looking at a monitor or, or a screen or something like this has to be automated mm-hmm. and we have to have a lot of computing power to monitor a logistics network like this across a country. There are tons of examples across different fields of engineering, but I think what's maybe most exciting to me is that digital twins have really started to move well beyond engineering. So for example, in the geosciences, people are thinking about digital twins of reservoirs and how that could guide exploration and increase production efficiency or maybe guide uh, carbon sequestration decisions. I've heard people imagining a digital twin of the planet that might guide climate policy. So lots of exciting examples. And even though we cannot today think about a digital twin of the planet, we can imagine what would it take to get there? What would it take in terms of models, in terms of data, and in terms of computing power? A planet-sized supercomputer, for one. So another exciting area where digital twins are really just in their very initial stages is in medicine. And there's a lot of interest in the medical community around creating digital twins for cancer patients, digital twins for uh, modeling the heart, maybe even digital twins of the whole human. Like my Final Fantasy Ninja. Right. Or all the various characters that were in Ready Player One. Although those weren't digital twins. Those were, you know, it was the opposite of digital twin. It was people trying to be someone else in that world. But <laughs> but, you know, the, the, it's a the bad con- example, bad example, but <laughs> another great terrible movie. <laughs> you know, the analogy in medicine is the, the holy grail of personalized medicine, where your doctor can make decisions based on data from you as an individual and based on predictions of how you, the individual, might react to a therapy or to a drug or to a certain intervention. And a personalized digital model of you that is collecting data and evolving to reflect your changing health is something that I think really kind of encapsulates that. And again, starts to make that idea of personalized medicine at scale really possible. And then things don't have to be perfect to be useful. Improving outcomes in medicine is something where we are so far from optimal that thinking about how this combination of predictive models and data could drive towards better outcomes for patients, I think is just a game changer. Yeah, this is one of those areas where I think we're going to have significant advancements in the next decade or two. Oh, I hope so. There's definitely some ethical considerations here because in order to provide this level of medicine, you have to have very accurate models, which means a lot of information, right? Mm-hmm. DNA, genome typing. Like, there's a lot of information that this third party is going to have. So, in order for this to take off, there's definitely going to have to be some legislation around it to make sure that it, in fact, remains private, right, between the individual and their medical provider. At the same time, I think somebody who's losing someone to cancer isn't going to be so worried about the personal information getting out there if it means saving a person's life. And that, but that's all the more reason why there should be legislation to protect those people because they're making an emotionally based decision. Exactly. I was like, that is exactly the reason the ethical part has to be in place because that person is under duress for obvious reasons mm-hmm. and they're easily taken advantage of in that scenario. Yeah. Yeah. But once that litigation is in place and this is all straightened out, if we can get to that point, imagine the implications in personalized medicine I actually spoke to a doctor who is doing something very similar in pediatric cardiology and where they model a surgery that they're going to do and they simulate it beforehand based on like a particular patient's physiology. And then they use those simulations to conduct the most successful personalized surgery possible. And they're they're basically saving children's lives. It's pretty amazing. 
And beyond engineering and medicine, there's a wide range of other applications for digital twins in fields like education. How do you make personalized education a reality when you have a classroom with one teacher and, you know, 30 or 40 students all at differing levels? So thinking about how the concept of a digital twin, which is a combination, again, of models and then data from one particular person, how those might go together to complement and expand what teachers can do and make them more effective in the classroom. Yes, education is one of those areas that it's very difficult, right? And we've learned over the last, I don't know, three or four decades that the one size fits all approach that we've been using is the best we have, but it's not the best. And Mm -hmm. imagine a situation where you could have a digital twin that could show you what the best way a student learns is, and you could tailor the curriculum to that. I think we would end up with collectively a larger number of students who did well in school as opposed to now. I think it would be a game changer. I totally agree. And apparently not just in education, Karen was talking about how digital twins would greatly benefit people who are social workers, which I had never really thought about. Social workers spend an inordinate amount of their time sort of dealing with, you know, data and paperwork and kind of logistics and the actual time that they spend face to face with the people that they're trying to help is minimal. And so thinking about, again, how digital technologies and computing could change the face of social work in a way that complements the human social worker. So again, you could imagine, you know, digital twins that are taking care of a lot of that sort of nitty gritty data and building models so that the human social workers can really focus on the place where the humans bring high value to the process, which is in in face-to-face interactions. And this was kind of awesome. In the middle of our conversation, this happened. Sorry. Is that your fire alarm? It's my daily health check. Hang on a second. Oh! Hello? That's amazing. I'm busy. I was actually wondering if that was going to happen while we were talking. That's so interesting. What in the world was that? When it goes off, it either means it's time to go and get the thing shoved up your nose (laughs) for the PCR swab or they're calling to see how you're feeling. They also come bang on the door to take your temperature. So apparently anyone who enters New Zealand has to quarantine for a couple weeks in some designated hotel before they can travel anywhere in the country. And Karen was talking to us from one of those quarantine hotels when we were interrupted by this health check alert. It was very pandemic-y. Yeah. It, <laughs> That's it, a new word. It almost sounded to me like, you know, she was on lockdown and her cell block was going on lockdown. All inmates must return to your room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know about you, Ernest, but talking to Karen got me stoked for the potential of digital twins and what they can do for so many aspects of society, even beyond MMO video games, right? But since this technology is still in its early stages, I asked Karen, where do we go from here? What can we do to make these ideas a reality? And she said that a key would be collaboration. We need to see computer scientists and data scientists and mathematicians and engineers collaborating with experts in social work and education and medicine. And it's really that sort of spreading of ideas and technologies across fields, which is really going to build a society where we start to benefit from the incredible advances in mathematics and computing that we've seen over the last two decades. And Karen says that advancing technology is getting us closer and closer to widespread use of digital twins. 
where we can do things today that couldn't be done just a few years earlier. There are two things that have been game changers. Uh, One is the sensing technology, which has just advanced so much so that now we can sense so much more and have access to so much more data about our systems. And then second are the algorithms, the algorithms that let us analyze and process that data at scale, you know, incredible advancements and things like, you know, randomized algorithms. So singular value decomposition, being able to extract low dimensional structure from massive data sets and do it on a scale never before imagined and so quickly. That's been an absolute game changer. And as digital twins continue to advance, there's a lot of good they can do even before we've mastered how to use them perfectly. Does a model have to be perfect and resolve every last detail to be a digital twin? And I think the answer is a resounding no. And we only have to look back to that Apollo 13 example and think about 1970. Just imagine what kind of sensors they had on board the spacecraft. Think about what kind of computers they were using and think about the sophistication of their models. And, you know, it's it's a great reminder that what we do as engineers, especially, is that we make use of imperfect data, imperfect models and finite resources of computing to drive towards better decisions. And so thinking about not just about the things we can't model, but thinking about the things that we can model and what that means for improved decision making, I think is, again, a really sort of exciting prospect. You can find more information about Karen and her work on the episode notes page of bigcompute.org, or you can visit Karen's website at kiwi.odin.utexas.edu. I have to emphasize that a kiwi is a bird, not a fruit. (laughs) I always thought it was a fruit, but I didn't understand why we called New Zealanders kiwis. I thought maybe they just grew a lot of kiwis in New Zealand, but then I I look at pictures of New Zealand and I'm like, do they really grow kiwis there? (laughs) Maybe maybe it's both, right? It's a bird and a fruit. I don't know. I don't know either. All I think of is Lord of the Rings. It actually does kind of look like the fruit with a long pointy beak. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Big Compute Podcast. If you want to help us spread the word, you can leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts, like Apple Podcasts. Or tell a friend. Oh, or Google Podcasts. Oh my gosh, do we have to say this every time? <laughs> <laughs> or you can tell a friend about us or do both. Whatever you want to do to help us get to more people, we will happily accept. <laughs> and you can sign up for Big Compute Announcements by visiting bigcompute.org. And that should do it. Thanks so much for joining us and stay safe out there. Remember everyone to use multi-factor authentication and 321 backups. Goodbye. I like your sign off. I have to remind everyone to do it because they won't. It's true. My husband's PlayStation account got hacked because he didn't have 2FA and they they used his credit card that was on file with his account to purchase a bunch of games and then set up 2FA so that he couldn't get back into his account. (laughs) Yeah, that happened last week.